We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 20 and, and 21. I will have to say, I think every step closer we get to the end of Romans 6, I find myself wanting to just slow down and wring out every drop because of the richness. That's not why I am making decisions about how far to go and how far not to go. This is the, the led by the text. We're looking at two verses this morning, verse 20 and 21, which is the next section that Paul unfolds here. And with that um, desire for Romans 6 not to end, I remember that we're less than halfway through the book, and every chapter brings new truths. Remember my, I think it was my friend Rick Holland, um, back when we started Romans, when we heard that we were starting Romans, I was starting Romans in it was 2021, that's when we started Romans, he, he immediately said, oh, it'll, it'll change you and it'll, it'll change the church, having preached through it himself, and he's true. And some of which you find in Romans, we're halfway through, some of which, some of the truths that you find there are deep and they leave us falling before the wall of worship, as it's called. It's just, it's inexplicable. It's, it's beyond human comprehension, like Romans 11, speaking of Israel being set aside and the wisdom of, of God's sovereignty. And in passages like that, we confess with Paul, oh, the, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And, you know, he ends that chapter with... To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that's the end of the doctrinal portion, as it's called, of Romans. And then it begins with Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, as I memorized it, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Based upon the mercies of God, you present your bodies. Yet other passages, like the one before us in Romans 6, they're, they're plain. They're simple to grasp. You, you don't... It doesn't leave you scratching your head. A slave obeys his master, and you can't have two at the same time. I mean, that's common sense, as Paul would say. That's not hard to grasp. That doesn't, it doesn't leave a, a, a great gulf between your, your, your human ability to, to comprehend God and, and what he's saying. This is just, it's just plain. It's, it's part of, of life. You get it. You, you obey one and not the other, which inevitably then leads to a certain kind of life in following one master or the other master, especially when you do that your whole life. You, as you yield yourself to, to that master, then it leads to an incremental process of transformation, good or bad. And Paul told us last week that as Christians, we who have Christ as our master must, must grow, and unfruitfulness is not an option. And today he's going to remind us that just as the Christian life produces fruit, the unsaved life produces nothing but barren branches. In Romans chapter 6, verses 20 and 23, which is the section we're starting, Paul compares the results of the two masters that he's been talking about beginning in verse 16 and going all the way through verse 19. And he, and he says both masters provide a payout for service. There's a payday. Which Paul is now going to detail as his reasons to obey his command in verse 19, to present our members as slaves of righteousness. That's the command that he gave us last week, and now he's going to give us reasons to do that. In verse 18, he told us that those who, who receive his gospel have become slaves of righteousness. That's the truth. And in verse 19, he then makes an appeal to pursue this new master by reminding us of three things. The weakness of your flesh, the comparison of your pursuits, how you used to pursue sin, and now you're pursue God. And then he says there's a promised result when you do that. You will grow. And he uses this macro term, sanctification. And now in verses 20 through 23, he'll show us exactly what, what those results are uh, by contrasting the, the fruit of both of these kinds of lives. He, he performs a fruit inspection, if you will, before he draws his final conclusion in that beloved verse, which you probably know by heart, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a summary statement of his entire argument. 
Paul says a Christian is a person who's undergone a transformation. And he says you were something. You were slaves to sin. You, you were hopeless bound. And until you grasp that, you'll never want the gospel or see your need for the gospel. You, you were a slave. But then he says you became something new. In, in verse 18, you became obedient from the heart to a doctrine, to a new teaching that shapes you. And then you live differently. You became slaves of righteousness. And he says, all by the power of grace. So God is the one who gets the credit. And in that transformation, you became obedient, not just outwardly, but but inwardly. Obedience takes place from from within, where the law cannot reach. You you may have the Ten Commandments hanging all over your house. You may have memorized them. You may may hang them in front of you. They're external. Unless they, they, they get within your heart... Then, then obedience, true obedience, obedience that, that's from the desire level doesn't take place. And the specific content of teaching, Paul says, that you now embrace is conforming you into its shape. It's a specific type of teaching which, which has a mold, and, and, and as you follow this master, that new mold begins to, to shape you and change you. And your role in that process is what he gave us in verse Verse 19, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That's what we just covered last week. And remember, Paul is explaining this because of common common accusations about grace. I mean, the gospel is so one-sidedly shocking that it produces some common objections. The gospel of grace. A gospel that's dependent upon God alone. A gospel that's not attracted to you in any way. It's... It's divine grace. It's sovereign grace. And that produces objections. Maybe it produces objections in your own heart. And Paul does not give one inch on that. He explains that it's grace that saves us and it's grace that sanctifies us. And yet there are means in human responsibilities. You present your members after this work of grace. You remember he deals with two general questions about grace in verses 1 and 15, which are the two parts. Part 1 answers the question, shall we go on sinning because we are under grace? That's the accusation. And Paul says people who have been transformed by grace don't want to continue in sin. It's a ridiculous question. May it never be. You, that's what you would say. No way. Paul says those who have been transformed don't want to continue in sin. And then part two is 15 through 23, the section we're now in. He answers the question, shall we sin because we're not under Old Testament law anymore. And Paul says it's not needed because the gospel writes the law on our hearts. It's not the law that's not, the law's not bad. In fact, it's a tool, but, but, but it's not what is necessary to, to keep you straight. God writes that law on our hearts in the transformation. And so the first question is focused on sin because we're under grace, and the second is about this restraint because we no longer have the law as our master. And, and you remember he uses this analogy of slavery, this plain analogy which all the Romans could understand, which you understand. He, he uses that to explain this. And he says Christians are not lawless under grace because grace makes them obedient to a new master. And that master produces results which, which we'll see today. You recall verses 16 through 23 is all an answer to this question in verse 15, given in three sections. Verse 16 makes a general argument. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, your slaves are the one whom you obey? And then in verses 17 to 19, it applies it spiritually. Thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient. And now in verses 20 and 23, he shows us why we should listen. He contrasts the results, the fruit of both of those masters, both of those lives. And we said when you put it all together, Paul gives three arguments that explain how grace operates through spiritual slavery. There's the representation of slavery, the reality of slavery, and today what we'll look at is the results of of slavery. Both kinds. Slavery to sin, slavery to righteousness. And the first argument you, you, you remember is... This representation of slavery. Paul says his message does not produce lawless people, it produces obedient people because it changes their their masters. That's what he says in verse 16. 
either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in, in righteousness. And, th- and then he turns from the general illustration about slavery, he applies it spiritually, and, and he starts doctrinally. He gives a second argument, the reality argument, the reality of it. He says everyone is a slave, either of sin or of righteousness. And he shows us that doctrinally, where he gives this clearest, one of the clearest pictures of a Christian testimony in the Bible. He describes the process of, of change and, and how it takes place. But thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. And verse 18, having been freed, you became slaves. So what you were, what you, you are now, and then the, the, the transformation, the change that's there. And then he shows us that practically. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. He he makes an appeal now to pursue this, this, this new change, this new master, by explaining three things. There's still an indwelling propensity to sin. You have to be aware of that. You must engage in this intense pursuit, which inevitably will then lead to an incremental process of growth that he calls sanctification in the macro. Verse 19 has the lone imperative. It focuses on the Christian duty as a slave. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also gives you sound reason why you should should listen to him. He gives the results of slavery. He says there's barrenness of the unsaved life. There's fruitfulness of the redeemed life. And then he gives this summary conclusion. Look, if you would, at verse 20. This is all new. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which you're now ashamed for the outcome is, is death. There's the barrenness of the unsaved life. Here's the redeemed life, fruitfulness. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. And here's the summary conclusion. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our our Lord. I was told my grandfather didn't come to Christ until he was in his 60s. He testified he was a believer, but I wasn't alive whenever he came to the Lord. He was around 60 years of age. And he used to say, even if there wasn't a place called heaven, following Jesus is still a better way to live. I didn't follow the Lord for 60-some years, and, and I can tell you it's a better way to live. And, and Paul proves that here. He says, you get a better master with better results. And then he says, and oh, by the way, you get heaven as well. It's not only a better master and a better way to live, better fruit. You get heaven as well. And Paul looks at both sides of the equation reasonably. The unsaved life, what it produces, the redeemed life, what it produces. And he summarizes that in verse 23. And we'll do the same. We'll, we'll look at what you receive from your unsaved days. And then we'll look at what is promised to you if you're in Christ, and then we'll draw the final conclusion. And Paul says you should present your members as slaves of righteousness based on three reasons. There's no benefit in your old life. There's true fruit in the new one. And in the end, in the end you get eternal life instead of eternal death. And you should be able to see those three parts very clearly. The negative reasons in verses 20 and 21. The positive reasons in verse 22. And then this blended statement where he holds both truths up for us together in verse 23. And again, don't lose the context. The context of of all of this is how unthinkable this question is in verse 15. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Paul says that's utterly unthinkable to a Christian. It's impossible because you've changed your master's. That's what he just got done saying in verses 16 through 19. And now he says, not only is it impossible, it's impractical based on verses 20 and 23. You wouldn't even desire to do that if you could. You can't because you've changed masters. You don't want to, but but you wouldn't if you could. Because of the fruitlessness of the old way that you lived and the benefits of of the new. And he starts by holding up the barren branches of the of the unsaved life. 
he, he makes three statements about the unfruitful nature of your pre-salvation days. And he, he starts with this overarching declaration in verse 20. Here's a declaration. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's his declaration. And then he makes three observations that anyone can make about the unsaved state. Verse 21. Therefore, what fruit were you deriving from the things which you're now ashamed. He says, the unsaved state, you were spiritually fruitless, you were without fruit of any kind, and then he says, you're ignorantly shameful. And his third observation is, you were gaining death. For the outcome of those things is, is death. This life ends in death, physical and more particular, eternal. Look at how he unfolds this. Verse, verse 20 the barrenness of the unsaved life. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And notice that begins with, with the little word for, which now links it to what Paul just says in verse, verse 19. It's not just kind of hanging out there. It's connected to his whole argument. For links it to the command to present your members. That tells us verse 20 and 23 provides the basis to offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. He gives reasons, sound reasons, to support that command. He, he zooms in to examine the fruit of both masters. And, and, he, and he says, let's look at the unsaved life first. Let's look at the barrenness of the unsaved life. Paul says, let's not theorize about it. Let's examine your unsaved life. What did it produce? And he, he really just turns the Judaizers' argument, the ones who were saying, no, grace, but, but law too, he just turns the argument in, a, in another direction. He says, Let, let's test the argument of needing the law. Look at your gospelless and graceless life. Even when the law was around, what was there? Don't miss this is a, another appeal to logic and reason. You should not think Christianity is, is, is a venture into mystical mush. I mean, God gives you rational arguments for the, for the truth. You, you may not understand them or even care about them as a lost person, but because the, the, the natural mind, the natural man doesn't, doesn't grasp the things of, of, of God. But they're, very, they're very rational, very logical. They're laid out right here. Which, by the way, that, that's another reason apologetics is primarily for Christians, not, not lost people. I mean, it takes the Spirit of God to change people, not, not arguments. But Paul says when the Spirit of God does change you, then, then the Word, God's Word, and the sound reason in it makes perfect sense. Notice Paul's talking to, to Christians here. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I mean, it's all past tense. He, he says, hey, Christian, look back at your unsaved life. In that state, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's his declaration. And in that state, you were outside of the realm of righteousness. You were, you were free in respect of it. It's a, it's a dative of respect. And what Paul means is, is very clear from the, from the context. I mean, righteousness and sin have been personified as, as powers that you submit to. Look at verse 18. He says, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Having been freed from the dominion of sin, from the power of sin, from sin's slavery, from sin as your master, you became slaves of righteousness. Righteousness is now ruling. And so here, he just reverses it. He calls you to look at the fruit of your life before Christ. And, and he says, in that state, you were free from the reign of righteousness. Paul could have stopped right there. Because you say, oh, I'm free from the reign of righteousness. I'm outside of the domain of righteousness. I'm, I'm not under uh, the, the, the Lord in, in any way, shape, or form. Of course I'm not going to have fruit. But Paul doesn't stop there. He, he, he makes you look and, and examine every branch. You're, you should expect a barren branch after this declaration. Because he says if you're obeying one, uh, obeying one that means you're, you're free from obedience to the other. So he means free from its control. 
free from the control of righteousness, which, which obviously includes the benefits that it produces, which he just defined in verse 19 as sanctification. And now he'll show us specifically what, what he means by, by that. I mean, when you were unsaved, you were free in respect to God's mastery. You were, he wasn't your master. And you were free from that holiness that it produces. There was no growth. There was no sanctification. You were free in regard to control, free in regard to fruit. Paul says slavery has one master, freedom from one, control, means that you're not under the other. He's talking about, not, not just talking about free from the forms of righteousness, like good deeds and moral life. Surely that's true. He's going to get into that in verses 21 and 22. But, but in this first statement, he's just doubling down on the master-slave relationship. Every person who is a slave of sin is not under the control of righteousness, no matter what you think. You think, I have a little bit that I can offer to God. I mean, you ask anybody on the street, and that's what Paul says here is not what the majority of people believe. They believe that there's good and evil, and they can kind of bob back and forth. You'll have no problem getting anyone to agree, for the most part, I would guess, that, they're, that they've done wrong things. And they may even say, I'm not, a, I mean, I can see how I could be held accountable for that, but but tell them they're a slave of sin and they can produce no good before God whatsoever and you'll get an argument. Eh, I don't know about that. And Paul says that is true and you know it now as a believer. Look back at your unsafe state. Declaration. Lloyd-Jones says the worldview of many is this. If, if a good God exists... He will reward nice people if they do their best. Isn't that the general idea of the world? If a good God exists, I don't know who He is, but if He does exist, then surely He will reward nice people if they do their best. That's the perspective of the world. And they have no problem with any religion, even a watered-down form of Christianity that presents that. But that's not the gospel. Preach that and no one will have a problem with you. But the Bible says that's, that's not true. The Bible says there's a holy God who does exist, and He will repay evil people their wicked deeds. That's what the Bible says. And those who understand God's righteousness recognize that they were free from it in their former life, and they recognize that they need it from Him. Don't you recognize that now? You look back and whatever you thought might have been good, you helped whoever across the street or you served here or you gave that money there or whatever, you look back at that and you say, that was nothing. I, I had no, no weight whatsoever that could hold up before God. And I'm not even saying those things aren't good to do. But what Paul is saying is whether it's good to the fellow man, you, have, you had nothing of weight or of value to hold up before God to put on his scale. It was zero. And so a person who understands that understands that they can't add to it and they need righteousness from, from, from God. Or that their morality, they know their morality is not worth anything. Paul says it's free from God's righteousness. I mean, he's calling you to, to see reality. There's no way to straddle the fence. Before conversion, you were slaves of sin, in bondage to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, and you were outside of God's control in Christ. You were free from, from its authority. You were free from submission to it because you were submitting to another master. You can't have two of them. And that other master produced fruit. He demanded works from you to which you submitted to. So what do you get from that kind of life that's free from the reign of righteousness. Well, the first thing Paul says is it was, it's an empty life. Look at verse 21. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What kind of life, what, what, what kind of fruit does that life produce? Therefore, what benefit or literally what fruit were you deriving? You ask a question. 
He says your, your life outside of Christ was fruitless. It was a fruitless life. It was a pointless life. The King James and the ESV retain the correct word here. Paul uses a specific word for fruit. What fruit were you getting from your unsaved life? Look at the branch. What fruit was on it? The word fruit, whenever Paul uses it, overwhelmingly is positive in Paul's writings, which is why the, the NASB tries to communicate that with the word benefit. What benefit? Paul clearly is asking what benefit, but I think he actually wants that word fruit retained. What fruit? Because he uses it to draw out a point in his argument. I mean, his detractors believe that the law produced righteousness. And, and Paul says, no, you were free from that. And they also believe that, that a life that had the law produced fruit for God. You want a fruitful life? Follow the law. And Paul says, that's impossible. Look at the branches. There was nothing there. And I would say to you, look back at your unsaved life. Is there anything that was of spiritual value from your unsaved days? And the answer any true Christian gives is no, there's nothing. Again, it doesn't mean that you did do, you accomplish certain things, but in the sense of did you have anything in your unsaved life that you would, on the final day, stand before God, offer to God as an argument for why He should let you in heaven, or why he should not judge you. And, and, and as a true Christian, you would say, I have nothing. I have nothing. There's nothing I want to offer God on that day. The only thing I want to offer God on that day is I want to point to your son. I, I have nothing. But my advocate right here, look at the marks, the slaughter still on it. That, that's my righteousness right there. God will use everything from your unsaved life. But there's nothing that was spiritually fruitful that you get credit for. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, verse that you understand or you know, I should say, Isaiah 64 declares that from the Old Testament. These Judaizers should have known this. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a, a leaf, and our iniquities like wind take us away. We're, we're weightless. This is the exact same thing that Paul says here. It's a filthy garment. You'll be ashamed. But, but here he says, at the end, it's like, it, 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 it's like a, a, a wisp from a dandelion. It's how weighty your unsaved life is. Our iniquities like the wind, they, they take us away. Judgment takes us away. There's no weight to us. Jesus calls us to look at our pre-conversion days in the same way, in a gospel way, in another verse that you know. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It, it, this is the same thing that Paul concludes about his own life in, in Christ as, as well, in Philippians 3. Paul did this exact same examination. He wrote about it. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It is empty, but, but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith. There's that, that imputed righteousness. God crediting Christ's righteousness to our, our account, and that depends on faith. And he gets worked up about it. He is, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, and, and may share his sufferings becoming like him in, in death. That's the cry of every true Christian. Whatever I had, whatever I was... It's, it's empty. It's weightless. And now what do I want? I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. And may, that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in, in death. See, Paul's done the same reckoning that he's calling us to make here. And he drew the same conclusion. He says his B.C. life, his before Christ life was, was fruitless. It was weightless. And he says, you can see that too, can't you? You wouldn't go back to it because it didn't produce anything worthy or of anything of any value. 
Because once you became a Christian, you evaluate the benefits of life differently. You weigh things out differently, don't you? I mean, what you once thought was valuable, you can see now it has no value at all. I mean, as a slave of sin, you pursued a path of life that you believed of great value because you had an entirely different evaluation center, you had an entirely different matter, a master. I mean, you looked at money and said, that's what I want. It's worthy of my pursuit. Whatever I have to do to get that, I will. There's an evaluation that happened there. Or you looked at sex or the desire to be liked by people, and, and you said, that's what I want. It's a worthy aim And whatever I must do, I will get that. And Paul is saying now as a saved person, you look at all of that differently. I mean, look at it now. What did it produce? He says it was fruitless toward God. The goals that you were pursuing as an unbeliever are now weighed on a different scale, on a Christian scale. And so they come up with a different value and and you make entirely different conclusions. Therefore, you realize the pursuit of those things were not worth it either. No, now with a a new set of eyes for what is truly valuable, you see what is worthy and what is worth your time or your energy or your effort or whatever it is. And Paul says, I know the answer that they're going to give to this question because they're believers. I mean, listen, one of the evidences that you pass from death unto life is that you can see what is truly worth living for. I mean, if you claim to know Christ, then your treasure is different. It's like what Jesus says in the parable in in Matthew. You're bumping along in the field of life, and when the gospel comes, you find a treasure hidden in the field, and you sell all to buy that field. Nothing else matters after that. Or you're searching for the perfect pearl, and you find the pearl of great price, and then everything else pales in in comparison. You'll no longer treasure the world. That's what John means when he talks about loving the world. At first John. This is a, all about testing your salvation. Watch, watch why there's, there's no wiggle room here. No wiggle room here. What happened? That's not it. There it is. Do not love the world or the things of the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, think of the exclusivity there. I mean, it almost almost makes us uncomfortable. We want to find some way to explain it away. I mean, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a declarative statement, just like Paul makes here. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. For all that is in the world... Watch how there's an evaluation here. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the eyes, the pride of life. You're evaluating life, what what the flesh desires, what what the eyes see is pleasurable or what they want, the pride of life, what to pursue. There's an evaluation there. John says that's not from the Father, but, but it's from the world. And he says the world is weightless, it's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. They have substance. I mean, this is, you, you do this evaluation now as a believer. As, as an unbeliever, you, you didn't. That's why an unsaved heart is restless until it finds Christ. There's nothing to weight it down. There's nothing, there's nothing of substance. It looks for love in all the wrong places and finds nothing. It seeks and it searches in all the things of the world, like, like, like a bird during the flood with no place to light. The unsaved heart flies around from poisonous flower to deadly weed and, until finally, finally after its weary course, its wings give out and it can't fly anymore and it's not until it finally falls to the ground that, that then it's, will it allow someone to save it? This is what an unsafe person does. They go from thing to thing to thing until their, their wings finally wear, wear out and they fall to the ground. And there, on the ground, they say, someone, save me. And then the Lord comes and scoops them up. 
Well, the unsaved life is an empty life, Paul says. It's a vain life. That's why sinners go from one thing to the other, seeking to satisfy their souls and unable to find it. They explore new sins or deeper ones, still never finding what they're, what they're looking for. And Paul says what you're looking for is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you've come to know Him, you now recognize that. He's your true treasure. But he gives another clear evidence of, of salvation. He says it's barrenness. It's an empty life, but it's also a shameful life. He says, you're ashamed of the life that you used to live. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, what fruit were you deriving when you were not under the reign of righteousness? From the things of which you're now ashamed. He says it's an empty life, but it's also a shameful life. The unsaved life is a shameful life. Paul says, first of all, it's not until you're a believer that you can actually see and evaluate the weight of things properly And what you once thought was of great value, you realize is empty, but beyond that, you're now ashamed of it. And when you put it on a different scale, a proper scale, its weight is different, but beyond seeing its folly, you you see it's disgraceful. I mean, you're embarrassed over what you once pursued. You're disgraced by it. One writer said you blush when you think about those things. You're ashamed. Because you now see it for what it is. You see it was lawlessness and uncleanness. Therefore, one thing Paul is saying here is, is when you're in sin, you can't see sin rightly. So you need the Bible to tell you what's right and what's wrong. It's only when your eyes are open to Christ that you're able to see sin. And, and when you see it, then you're ashamed and you hate it. The evidences of salvation. And isn't it true when you look back at the deep of your... Your dead life, don't you feel ashamed? Don't you feel shame? You should. I do. I wish I'd never done those things. I don't even like to think about them. The Bible calls those things of the unsaved life the unfruitful works of darkness. Look at Ephesians 5, 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Isn't that what Paul just says right here? It's fruitless. It's a work of darkness. But instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's the reason it's called the nightlife or the nightclub. It's because what happens there are the deeds of darkness. John says one of the reasons that people don't come to Christ is that they love the dark because they think it conceals their wicked deeds. John 3, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to it lest his works or deeds would be exposed. I mean, when you were lost, you liked the dark. You did some of your most awful sin when the lights were out. And Paul says, now that you're in the light, you can see the deeds of darkness and you're ashamed. You can see the dirt. It's one of those painful things that you, that you have to do in order to be right with the, with the Lord. Because you have to bring your sin before Him. Him who is blinding pure light. And when you do, you're exposed like never before. The light hurts your eyes and the dirt is painful to see. And and you're ashamed, but that's where God cleanses you. He cleanses you in the light. What Proverbs 28, 13 says. He who covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. God says, pull it out from the dark. Pull it out from underneath the the bed and expose it, and I'll wash you clean. Paul says, when I was a slave of sin, I didn't care how dirty I was. I wanted more dirt and more darkness, and now I feel ashamed, both of the empty pursuits, weightless pursuits, and also the wicked aims. Shame is a biblical idea. 
a biblical idea that the world wholly rejects. The world encourages you to take pride in your sin, and I'm not just talking about homosexuality. It tells you to to love yourself and forgive yourself and live for yourself. You be loud and proud of a wicked life, but but now that you're saved, you're not proud at all, are you? You, you, you? In fact, you're ashamed of the way that you used to live, and you should be. I'm ashamed of both what I pursued and what I didn't. And you may be a squeaky clean Sunday school kid and not lived in the wickedness like I did or other people did. And Paul says it's not just pursuing the wrong things, it's not pursuing the right ones. And when you think in sin, you likely think in terms of transgression, like I did something evil. But, but it can also be some good and omitted. And as that child growing up in church, you were, you were omitting the very thing that is required of you to love God with all your heart. And you're a slave of sin. Self-righteousness or whatever it might be. Sin of omission. And you're ashamed of that now. You might think of it this way. I mean, if someone prepared a wonderful meal for you, if you're married, maybe your wife says, I'm going to prepare a wonderful meal for you. I'm going to take great care to do that. Several hours. You're not married. Maybe your mother prepares a great meal or someone else that you care about takes great pains to prepare a meal for you and invites you over And let's say you do that, it would be offensive to stop for a bag of corn chips at Sheets on the way, right? And you get there and you say, I'm sorry, I'm not hungry now. I had a chili dog and some corn chips on the way. I'm just not going to eat that. It wouldn't just be neglecting a meal right in front of you. Like, well, I can choose this meal or I can choose that meal. You dishonored your host. And in the same way, God, who is the greatest of all things, is set before us daily. And his creation is there to display his greatness in order to bring awe and his daily gifts of food and life are there to produce thankfulness and his mercy in Christ is there and it's held out to draw us so so we can love him as the greatest of all things. And when we don't, Paul says it's shameful, it's evil, it's sin because we neglect the greatest thing. But not only was our former life pointless, made you feel ashamed, it, it ends in death. Verse 21. Therefore, what benefit, literally what fruit, were you deriving from the things which you're now ashamed for the outcome or the end, the conclusion of those things is death. So Paul takes the examination of the unsaved life to the end. And he says it ends very badly. And that's the ultimate test of something. Looking at where it will end. And a person in an unsaved state is already spiritually dead, so I don't think that's what Paul's emphasizing here. I mean, you can put the spiritual death part under the, the first two. Spiritual, a spiritually dead person is free from the reign of righteousness. They produce no fruit of any kind. And they're ashamed because of that, but... Paul's focusing here on the conclusion of the unsaved life, the end of the unsaved life. He says, says, look and tell me what was the conclusion in the end of your sin, of all those things. When you added up the fruitless life, the shameful life, what did you get? And his answer is separation from God and all that's good. That's what the unsaved life brings. It's the end of it. That's what you had to look forward to. No matter what you think you gain or garner here on earth, Paul says this is where it ends. It ends there. Both physical death and eternal death. It's just like Ecclesiastes reminds us. We all die. The wise and the simple go into the same hole in the ground. In physical death, like consequences to sin are are graces and mercies that God has actually built in to the curse, built into to life, which, which is meant to remind us of the greater truth. So physical death, or people around us die, and, and it levels the playing field. We see that, and we realize that they say you can drive your car up to the grave, but somebody else is going to drive it away. 
So when you consider the fact that you're going to die physically, it gives you some ability to evaluate life. Death in the curse is, is there, like common grace, to help sinners, people outside of Christ, to evaluate life. Uh, I mean, you think things like if you burn the midnight oil and you amass a lot of money and then you, you realize you're going to die and you can't spend it, you, you, you start evaluating. Is that very, very wise? I've never seen anyone want to count their money in the bank. On their deathbed. I mean, or if you give, you give your life to pleasure or fun or career, whatever it is, and maybe you never marry, you never have children, and, and so you end up alone in, in life. What you pursued early, which brought pleasure, you start evaluating things differently. The older that you get, is that really a good way to live? I'm alone now. It's common grace. Or the consequences of sin. But Paul ups the ante here and and takes it out of, is it just profitable? He says the end of the unsaved life is eternal death. Paul says one of the ways that you can test the true value of something is see where it ends. And I'm afraid a lot of people don't look at where it ends. They're only thinking their next choice, the end of their nose. A lot of people are making decisions about what's valuable with too short of a view. They hear God say, don't do that, and it will be bad. It won't be worth it, and they do it, and then there's not some immediate bad outcome. And they say, well, maybe that's not bad. In fact, it might even feel good. Which is what Hebrews says about sin being pleasurable for a season. And the key words are the last one. It's for a season. And Paul says, here's where the season ends. But give that same man a year in that sin and see what profit is there, or five years. I mean, there's a reason that the internet and the devil and the world, what, whoever you want to put into, that, into that, that, that first slot there, it's a reason that they present 20-year-olds that are perfect and buff. They don't ever, they don't ever present some 75-year-old who has, who's lived a haggard life of drink and, 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 and whatever else and say, look here. Take my drugs or whatever it is. This, this is where it will end you. They don't do that. They put the first one up there where the, where the consequences haven't, haven't taken effect yet physically. The Bible is doing the opposite. Paul says, look all the way to the end. That's how you truly evaluate something. Where will it end? How will it be in eternity? And Paul says, when, when you do that now as a saved person with your unsaved life... You think life outside of Christ, when you're enslaved and the pursuits that you put on the scale, the conclusion of the scale is death. That's where it culminates, which then is its true value. And that's where God comes in with the gospel. There's a great exchange. While your life is free from the reign of righteousness and it's empty and it's shameful and the final conclusion is death. In the gospel, God sends his son who then climbs on the scales in your place. And he first stands as a weightless sinner on the cross. Even though he was without sin. Naked and beaten in shame, he was crucified. And he takes the penalty for the scales on the conclusion, which was eternal death. And then after he raises, God takes a new measurement. He takes another with Christ in your place. And when God does the recalculation, the righteousness of Christ is now put on the scales. And it bottoms the scales out. But there's nothing more weighty, more fruitful, more eternal than Christ. And then the needle never moves after that because it's his righteousness on the scales. And Paul says that exchange can be yours by grace alone. In fact, it's only made available as a free gift of God. And it's by faith alone, without any mixture of your effort or work, so that, so that no man can boast. And it's freely offered to all. All you need to do is repent and turn to God for it. And you can see, as a believer, the true portrait of an unsaved life now on this side of the cross. You see it's empty, it's weightless, 
shameful and it earns death. So as a Christian, knowing that, why would you ever want to go back to that life? And Paul says, as a true believer, you wouldn't. May you fall there. Yeah, you might fall there. And when you do, the Bible says you have an advocate with the Father, but, but you're not going to run there. That's why this question is so ridiculous and it's impractical because there's nothing to go back to. The, your answer is, I, I wouldn't if I'm thinking Or as we sing, I'm too near home with my Lord, too near home in heaven's reward. I am not returning to sin. I have made my vow. There is nothing to go back to. Oh, praise the Lord. Sweet heavens in view. And that's what Paul proves here. There's nothing to go back to. Lloyd-Jones said every young person is faced with the call of the world and the call of God to evaluate which is profitable. And Paul does that calculation for you right here. And he says, choose God. Because the unsaved life is barren and it's shameful and it ends in death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you now and thank you for your word, how plain, how clear, how powerful your truth is. Oh, parts of us, just your voice. And I do pray, even right now, maybe for a believer that needs to be reminded of what you delivered them from. Maybe they're not experiencing joy or otherwise there's something's clogging up the pipes. And an evaluation of, of that life before. Maybe they're being tempted about that life before and you hold it up before them this morning. I, I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you and uh, be washed clean. One of the reasons that we don't have joy is there's something that we're holding on to, something between us often, some sin. May they turn loose of that this morning, Lord. And I pray for any believer who, who's outside, who, who can't make these evaluations, may today be the day that their wings give out. They stop flitting and flying from thing to thing, and they fall on the ground, and they, they say, I'm a slave, save me. And then, Father, we know you'll swoop down and scoop them up because the great exchange on the scale has already happened on the cross. And we praise Jesus for that. It's in his name we ask all this. Amen.